Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. BLACH.com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. Artist Works. Bluegrass players can learn from internationally recognized artists Tony Trishka, Mike Marshall, and Brian Sutton, and more at artistworks.com slash bluegrass. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. On today's California Report magazine, Lady Bird has put a Hollywood spotlight on the state capitol. But how do locals feel about it? I think we're a good countdown. I'm okay with that. But I think that this is a great town, and I think even a great city, that hasn't gotten the credit it deserves. And poet and author Miriam Gerba, her new book revisits a painful part of her life. I've carried around a lot of uh, survivor guilt because I and the other victim that didn't survive share a lot in common, but one of the things that we don't share in common is survival. Plus, the newly crowned Olympic figure skating champion is just 15. We meet an Oakland ice skating team where no one under 25 is allowed. I'm Susie Racho in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine, Your State, Your Stories. Every four years, the world falls in love with figure skating. It doesn't matter if we know any of the athletes or if we can't tell the difference between a toe loop and an axle. I can. I spent part of my childhood inside of a dark, dank ice rink in San Jose, skating both pairs and singles. I never got too far competitively, but Californians have always been well represented on Team USA. Think Peggy Fleming, Brian Boitano, Christy Yamaguchi. And this year, with Mariah Nagasu, Karen Chen, and Vincent Joe. But across the ocean from Pyeongchang, a group of skaters in Oakland also dreams of taking home the gold. KQED's Bianca Taylor introduces us to the isometrics. The isometrics, spelled like the word ice plus symmetrics, are a synchronized ice skating team. They practice at the Oakland ice rink before the sun rises. They're skating backwards in tight parallel lines, looking over their left shoulders with their right arms gracefully extended. The 13 women and one man are wearing matching black isometrics hoodies. During a break, one skater glides to the side of the rink to grab her water bottle. Her brown hair is pulled into a sleek ponytail and she's wearing a black fleece headband. She looks like a pro. 
But Robin Fernsworth is not a professional ice skater. I do public relations for technology companies. On the team, there's also a lawyer, a real estate agent, a human resources rep, and a teacher. See, most Olympic figure skaters peak in their 20s. The thing about the isometrics is you can't be under 25 to join. You may have never heard of synchronized ice skating, but it's a big deal. The sport draws 5,000 skaters nationwide to compete each year. This year, the isometrics beat their Denver rivals to become the West Coast champs for their age group. Now they're gearing up for nationals. As Elvis Presley music echoes through the empty bleachers, the isometrics run through their routine again and again, trying to make sure every leg kick and finger point of their three and a half minute performance is completely in sync. I mean, we have to do all of our steps together at the same count on the same beat. It's not easy because sometimes people, you might count a little faster, so we're kind of counting and listening to the music at the same time and breathing <laughs> as well. I can barely stand on ice skates, so the idea of skating in sync with 13 other people sounds literally impossible. But for Robin, ice skating is like second nature. So I started skating at age nine in Santa Rosa at Charles Schultz rink, which was about 10 minutes from my house. And I just always loved being on the ice. It's so smooth and it's thrilling because you're going fast. Robin's 46 years old. She skated competitively until she was 19. And then she made the choice that a lot of young athletes have to make. I left to go to college and have a career and have a family. But she always kept her ice skates in her closet until a few years ago, when a friend encouraged her to try out for a master's team for skaters 25 and older. Robin says her muscle memory's strong, but all those loops and axles have taken a toll on her body. And spinning is fun, but I get dizzy. So these are things that happen when you're an older ice skater. It's just like, okay, I can't get myself off the ground as easily. And when I spin, I'm like, whoa. This week, when the isometrics travel to Portland, Oregon for nationals, they'll be facing some tough competition from the Midwest and East Coast teams. But medal or no medal, Robin has already reaped the rewards of getting back into skating. I think as an adult and as a parent and in your job, you know, you're so stressed working. And so it's great to have an outlet where you can work out, you know, work out your mind, work out your body and just do something for yourself. Towards the end of practice, a pair of skaters works on a super tricky move for the finale. One woman squats, spinning and holding onto the forearms of another woman who is spinning on her back, just inches above the ice. I looked this move up, it's actually called a death spiral. And these skaters, these lawyers, teachers, parents, they nail it. They wake up before dawn to do something that is so hard, that so many of us watch on TV, but could never dream of doing in real life. No one's paying them to do it, their knees hurt, and they love it. And that's pretty Olympic. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Oakland. Do you think I look like I'm from Sacramento? You are from Sacramento. That's a scene from Lady Bird, the critically acclaimed coming-of-age film about a teenager who can't wait to leave Sacramento the place she calls the Midwest of California. Director Greta Gerwig calls her film a love letter to her hometown. The film's up for five Oscars, but nowhere is Lady Bird more celebrated than in Sacramento. In fact, there's a brand new walking tour for fans who want to relive the movie. Reporter Alan Young tagged along to ask locals how they feel about the film 
and the place they call home. The Ladybird walking tour begins in the fabulous 40s, an upper-class neighborhood envied by the film's protagonist for its rows of craftsman mansions, sycamore trees, and manicured lawns. Tour guide Jen Kistler-McCoy tells us that Ladybird director Greta Gerwig used to walk along these sidewalks as a child with her mother. It's how you learn a city is by walking through it, and so I just feel like it's fitting that we're walking through East Sacramento, probably up to H Street, where her and her mom probably walk to McKinley Park all the time, um, and then we're going to be heading right back down here. So, yeah, all right, let's get walking. Our first stop is Club Raven, a neighborhood bar with an iconic neon sign that flickers briefly in the film. Jen tells us they've created a special Ladybird cocktail. It has vodka, blackberry, a hint of lime. The tour costs $20. About 30 people are here, mostly women. This is not like one of those Hollywood bus tours that draw people from all over the world. Everyone is from around here. I meet Riley Burke, a 17-year-old high school junior who's grown up in Sacramento. She's wearing a vintage pink jacket that Ladybird might have worn. She proudly calls the film a story for women, by women. Seeing this happen, seeing a woman who is from my city succeed was just insanely powerful and inspirational. Like the filmmaker, the character, Lady Bird, has a complicated relationship with her hometown. In one scene, sister Sarah, the high school principal, tells the protagonist that her college essay shows how much she actually loves Sacramento. I guess I pay attention. Don't you think maybe they are the same thing? Love and attention? At our next stop, at the McKinley Park Rose Garden, I meet Carrie Blythe. She's 30, and she grew up in the neighboring town of Carmichael. She tells me she signed up for this tour as part of a New Year's resolution to pay more attention to the beautiful landmarks around her, like this one. I think it's going to help Sacramento and people maybe who live here and growing up here appreciate it more. Um, I think it's also bringing attention to things that maybe we took for granted. Carly Simo McIntosh is wearing a purple t-shirt that says, Home is Sacramento. Growing up here, Carly says she also took Sacramento for granted. But she moved back home after graduating from San Diego State University. That was eight years ago. She calls Ladybird that familiar voice reminding us of the time we declared we'd outgrown our hometown, then left only to realize we could never fully separate from that protective place. It's not just people from Sacramento that are appreciating it. It's people from all over that had a place that they grew up and left or stayed or came back. And there's a reason for that, like why they came back or why they love their hometown. Next, we head to the Pasty Shack, a small pastry shop whose sign is featured in the movie. A friendly stranger strolls up. It has to be a ladybird tour. And, 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 and good on you. I've, I've been hanging around here, as, well, as you can tell, for way too many years. It turns out that stranger's name is Quincy Brown, a 67-year-old Sacramento native. Quincy tells me that some residents in Sacramento have a chip on their shoulder following years of being overlooked as a cow town. And I don't mind a cow town. I think we're a good cow town. It's, I'm okay with that. But I think that this is a great town, and I think even a great city, that hasn't gotten the credit it deserves. And this movie gave us the hug that we needed. Next to the pasty shack is El Dorado Savings Bank. In the film, Lady Bird's father, Larry, brings her here to figure out how they can pay for college. 
with her scholarships, and then if we refinance the house, then where are we? Bank supervisor Keith Lyles comes out to the sidewalk and introduces himself to our tour. Sometimes it seems like everyone in Sacramento shares a personal connection to Greta Gerwig and her family. Even our, our teller we have here, Greta used to babysit him. And so when they did film the movie, Greta came in and said, I used to change his diaper. <laughs> Funny stuff like that. The Lady Bird walking tour ends at a lavish blue house where Lady Bird pretended to live. The house actually belonged to the grandmother of the heroine's boyfriend, Danny. In one scene, Danny turns to Lady Bird and says, Your mom's hard on you. Yeah, well, she loves me a lot. Sacramento can be its own harshest critic, but the locals widely agree that the fragile pride associated with living here was captured in an authentic portrait. It is a beautiful picture. For the California Report, I'm Alan Young in Sacramento. Author Miriam Gerba also drew inspiration for her latest book from her hometown. She grew up in Santa Maria on the Central Coast. But her memoir, Mean, explores darker territory. It opens with the rape and murder of a young woman. Gerba's connection to this violent attack is part of the unconventional path through the book. Sasha Koka spoke with Gerba earlier this week. So this book has a lot of biting humor in it, and... In some ways, you know, it's a love letter to Santa Maria and your childhood there. But one of the through lines of the book is something really painful, which is that you were raped and attacked in Santa Maria by a stranger. What made you decide to revisit that assault some 20 years later? I was interested in writing about rape in ways that I hadn't read before. And so I approached writing about my experience of rape um, experimentally. And that was what largely motivated the creation of the book. I was also interested in trying to find some sort of meaning in my survival. One of the other women who was attacked by, uh, by the man who attacked me was murdered by him and for 20 years, I've, I've carried around a lot of uh, survivor guilt because I and the other victim that didn't survive share a lot in common, but one of the things that we don't share in common is survival. And so I wanted to, to sort of construct some sort of meaning, to come to some sort of understanding, I think to give myself permission to enjoy being alive. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is also a ghost story. And one of the ghosts in this book is Sophia, who's a farm worker who was attacked and killed. And, and you know, you felt a deep connection to her, even though your lives were so different. Why was it important to tell her story, too? To me, it felt incredibly important to tell her story because nobody cared. She would frequently be referred to as the transient who was bludgeoned to death in Oakley Park. That's... Mm. That's her legacy. And it became glaringly disgusting to me when the uh, Michael Jackson trial was occurring and his trial happened in Santa Maria at the same courthouse where uh, Tommy Martinez was brought to trial for murdering Sofia Torres and attacking, you know, local women, including myself, that there was minimal concern for her death. But the Jackson case drew international attention. And it was just, it, it made me incredibly sad that this woman had had such a difficult life from birth 
and then endured such degrading, humiliating death, and that even in death, she was still nobody. And I think that in, it, it, maybe in some ways, I wanted to make her somebody, at least in death. Do you see writing about the assault that you went through as sort of a, a way to take back power or be able to tell your side of the story, that narrative from your point of view? Not necessarily. I don't treat writing as um, something that's particularly cathartic. In fact, it was really painful and, and really difficult. And I think I actually re-traumatized myself at times because I had to visit certain legal documents that detailed the murder of Sophia Therese. And, and there were certain details that I did not know about her murder that now live in my memory that I now have to reconcile and reckon with. Talk about the title, Mean. I mean, it can translate into vicious or aggressive. And you've kind of got this vicious and aggressive humor <laughs> yeah. in the book. Yes. And, you know, as you say, you're sort of revisiting this really painful thing that happened to you. Why did you decide to call the book Mean? I like really biting, short, direct titles. And the book is in some senses a celebration of feminine meanness and girlish pettiness and malice. And quite frequently, there are anecdotes in the book where girls are engaging in recreational meanness uh, to sort of uh, bond. But in addition to referring to that sort of meanness, I'm also using the word mean as shorthand for cruelty, because the book is also largely a meditation on the nature of cruelty and on the impact of cruelty. And then lastly, the book is also a meditation on meaning. Yeah, I mean, the structure of the book is so interesting, too, because some of the chapters are just a few words or sentences long, and the arc of it doesn't follow this literal timeline. You know, you're, you're sort of presenting these snippets and together. Yes. That was an intentional choice. Like, the structure is meant to give just enough chronology to the reader so that they can trace like the vestiges of a linear narrative but the linear narrative has been disrupted by something and that something is violence in particular by beginning the book with such a, a violent story and I don't inform the reader what my connection to this story is and that's intended to reflect the symptoms of PTSD particularly like the intrusive symptoms where one feels as if they're being ambushed by flashbacks and memories and so that story is intended to sort of serve as as a haunting um your book is coming out you know right at the time when this me too movement is gaining steam how do you feel about the fact that some people are connecting your book with that movement i have very mixed feelings about those connections on the one hand, I understand uh, why those connections would be drawn because my book focuses largely on misogyny and it focuses quite a bit on sexual abuse and sexual violence. However, um, much of the violence that I describe in the book, I think, stands apart from Me Too's interests in the sense that much of Me Too is concerned with how to reform existing relationships, for example, workplace relationships between men and women or uh, relationships at, that occur um, within the framework of dating, whereas the violence that I describe in Mean is, is violence that is largely perpetrated by a stranger. And so that sort of stranger violence, that sort of stranger blitz violence doesn't necessarily fit into those frameworks. And so I think that um, a different framework is necessary for discussing that particular kind of violence because the quality and the impact of it are different. 
Hmm. What are you working on next? Um, I'm working right now on um, essays about California that focus on regions that haven't necessarily gotten the spotlight. So I'm interested in writing about Lompoc or Santinez, Santa Maria, Orcutt, you know, Fresno, the parts of California that nobody necessarily makes it a point to visit or shine a spotlight on. Well, we'll have to talk to you again because that's our mission, too. <laughs> Yay. Miriam Gerba is the author of the new memoir novel, Mean. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. When tourists hit the road for Tamales Bay near the Point Reyes National Seashore, many of them are not only there for the stunning views, but also for the region's most well-known food oysters. But climate change is already causing problems for the oyster industry up and down the West Coast, and it's only expected to get worse. We're going to meet an oyster farmer who's teaming up with scientists to figure out how to save his shellfish. And as KQED science reporter Lauren Summer tells us, the solution might just come from nature. It's your typical political conference, a Sacramento hotel ballroom filled with lobbyists, policymakers, experts. Terry Sawyer seems to blend in wearing a blue blazer until you talk to him. I am definitely out of my element, out of my comfort zone. I would rather be in shorts and no shoes. Sawyer is an oyster farmer. He runs Hog Island Oyster Company, 50 miles north of San Francisco. And normally he's knee deep in mud. But a few years ago, he started going to climate change conferences, like this one, trying to understand it. Carbon chemistry is incredibly sophisticated, complicated science. Today, he's going on stage as a speaker with a message. We need help. We're, we're that canary in the coal mine analogy drives me crazy. But that's where we are. To see why, I meet Sawyer on more familiar turf. What kind are these? These are our sweetwaters. It's a Pacific oyster. Workers are sorting through a huge pile of fresh oysters, which have just come out of Tamales Bay right behind us. This time of year, we're getting those, some great flavors. Sawyer first started hearing about climate change a decade ago. Like a lot of oyster farmers, he buys baby oysters from hatcheries in Oregon and Washington. But the hatcheries were having mysterious die-offs. The orders that we were getting, uh, if we were getting them at all, they wouldn't necessarily happen at the time or the size that we could take them. And the main cause? Acidic seawater. At least a quarter of the carbon we humans put into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels is soaked up by the ocean. It's like a carbon sponge. But adding carbon to seawater makes it more acidic, about 30% more acidic. That's tough on animals that build shells. In other words, bad news for the Pacific shellfish industry, which is worth more than $100 million. You don't want to curl up in a fetal position. You do want to say, we've got to move on this, and, and it's, uh, we need help. So Sawyer found help by teaming up with scientists. And we're off. Good luck. Christy Croker is a professor of marine biology at UC Santa Cruz. She's scuba diving in a shallow part of Tamales Bay, surrounded by thick green seagrass waving in the current. When you're down in it, it really feels like you're in a forest of seagrass. It's quite long. This seagrass is a glimmer of hope for oyster farmers. Plants, whether it's a forest or your lawn, take up carbon dioxide and use it for photosynthesis. 
the plants under the water, they're doing the exact same thing. The seagrass pulls the carbon out of the water, which makes it slightly less acidic. So essentially, they're creating this little bubble of seawater around them that's more friendly for animals that might be threatened by ocean acidification. It's a buffer. So Croker is trying to figure out if oysters could be protected by putting them in seagrass beds. Down at the bottom, I'm going to start hooking the oysters onto the sensor. Croker dives and puts a mesh bag of baby oysters in the seagrass. She'll be watching them in the months to come. So far, the results look promising, but not necessarily the whole answer. Seagrass can reduce acidification around it, but only in certain locations or at certain times of year. But against a global problem, Croker says these local approaches have a lot of potential. Can we use parts of nature that are, we already know are important, um, seagrasses, to actually benefit people and protect them from some of these impacts? The approach is being studied around the world, in different ecosystems or using bigger marine plants like kelp. But eventually, it'll be up to oyster farmers like Terry Sawyer to make the research work on the ground, or in the water. From an aquaculture point of view, you bet I'm hopeful. Maybe I'm being idealistic here, but we're learning so much. We're just at the tip of the iceberg on that. And he's willing to try whatever it takes. For The California Report, I'm Lauren Summer. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Timbuktu. For our series, A Place Called What? We've been asking you for your ideas about California places with unusual names. Lane Parker from San Francisco sent us a note about Timbuktu in Yuba County, a place he says was a boomtown during the gold rush. When miners came to the area, the first placer miners, they wanted to name a place that was kind of far away and rich in gold. And they were thinking of Timbuktu, Africa. That stuck. They just changed the spelling. Lane has written a book about Timbuktu and is fascinated that this town, once known for its lavish wealth, is now a ghost town. I came across a travel diary entry from my great-grandmother that said she had stopped in Timbuktu of Mark Twain fame. I'd never heard of that before, and so I wanted to know more. I decided to try and go see the town site and left San Francisco on my motorcycle. I couldn't find anything and I couldn't believe that there was just no town there. So that made me want to research even more and find out even more. If I couldn't find the place where it was, then I wanted to find it at least on paper. A couple years later, I realized that I'd taken a wrong turn and that the town was on the other side of the road a little bit farther up. There's the ruins of the most famous building of that town called the Wells Fargo Stewart Brothers Store. It's an 1855 building built of brick and iron doors because it held Wells Fargo gold, but you cannot see anything of what the town used to be except the Wells Fargo ruins. You cannot see anything. You know, like the old theater that seated 800 people, it ended up being used um, by Chinese miners who came in after all the white miners had left, and the Chinese used to sleep in the basement of that theater. It had a brick basement, the rest of it had burned down. It's vanished. 
that's interesting to me, how a number of factors can create the perfect storm and a town just withers and dies. Timbuktu is the ghost of a ghost town. Nadine Sabai produced that interview with Lane Parker about Timbuktu. If you're curious how a California place got its unusual name, send us a note at calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Bianca Taylor. Katie McMurrin is behind the board. We had additional engineering from Seal Muller and Howard Gelman. Victoria Molion is our senior editor. Our online producers are Bianca Hernandez and Kelly Dunleavy O'Meara. Our team also includes Craig Miller, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Rocho. Sasha Coca returns next week. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to manage and track accounts from investments to retirement planning. Personal Capital, serving over one million people at personalcapital.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2018 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.